Before American Idol ever crowned pop star Kelly Clarkson, there was a little thing called Star Search. The show may have premiered in the 80s, but it found its biggest audiences and its biggest stars in the early 90s. In 1990, a nine-year-old Christina Aguilera riffed on Etta James's Sunday Kind of Love. A 14-year-old Alanis Morissette sang One Bad Apple. In 1991, 13-year-old Usher won the show's Best Teen Vocalist category. Eight-year-old Leanne Rimes didn't do so shabby herself. In 1992, at 11... Britney Spears wasn't lip-syncing, she was belting Love Can Build a Bridge, while Justin Timberlake pranced around the stage in a cowboy outfit. In 1993, a young Destiny's Child premiered on the show under the name Girl Time. Beyoncé later sampled the episode in her 2014 single, Flawless. Before the 90s, scrub meant an action you'd take while cleaning your bathtub. In 1992, the band TLC helped popularize another definition. A scrub is a guy who can't get no love from me. Those star search kids are now some of the planet's biggest celebrities. But at the time, they were just kids. And it makes you wonder. If they had the choice, would they wade through all the scrubs of the 90s? The men in the shadows who prayed and profited off their talents to do it all over again. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our fourth episode on The Dark Side Of The 90s. As every decade brings new challenges, a rosy tint has started to color these bygone years. But all this nostalgia obscures the more unpleasant bits of 90s history. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Last week, we explored the East and West Coast rap scenes in the 90s. It was a volatile time for hip-hop, with warring labels, diss tracks, and an often bitter rivalry between two rappers, Tupac and Biggie, who wouldn't make it out of the decade alive. Today, we're diving into another genre of 90s music, pop. Since its origins in the UK back in the 1950s, pop music has developed quite the sugary-sweet reputation. During the 90s, the underbelly of the candy-coated industry was rotting away and endangering its young stars in more ways than one. We'll jump into the dark details right after this. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. 2018 included new music from Mariah Carey, the Smashing Pumpkins, and the Backstreet Boys. In 2019, Christina Aguilera, Weezer, Snoop Dogg, Mary J. Blige, Beck, and Korn all released records. Between January and June 2020, Pearl Jam, Green Day, Nine Inch Nails, Eminem, and Britney Spears each dropped albums. Which is to say, many of the musical acts that skyrocketed to fame in the 90s are still producing music. But if you've listened to their latest hits, chances are you didn't purchase a physical copy from your local Borders, FYE, Tower Records, or Newberry Comics. On the way, you were likely never tempted by the sweet aroma of your mall's Cinnabon. The sound waves probably entered your ears the same way my voice is right now, through the convenience of a streaming platform. With Napster's arrival in 1999 and other free file sharing services like LimeWire following suit, Music piracy crippled the industry at the turn of the 21st century. Streaming platforms are helping bring back growth, but it's still in recovery. Taking into consideration inflation, global revenue in 2017 was still half of what it was in the golden age of music, the 1990s, when it peaked at $29 billion. As those dollar signs rained down on the music industry, they inspired greed and exploitation. And at the center of it all was the boy band. Boy bands didn't originate in the 90s. From the 40s through the 70s, the world had barbershop quartets, the Jackson Five, the Osmond Brothers, and New Edition. But our most modern interpretation of the genre, five male-identifying humans dancing and harmonizing without instruments for an audience of screaming teenagers, really took off in the late 80s with a musical act known as New Kids on the Block. It was also the beginning of the 90s that the term boy band entered public consciousness. As far as we can tell, nobody knows who coined it or why the 90s embraced them so much. But we do know that the success of New Kids on the Block coincided with the success of the record industry in an explosive way. In 1991, the group landed number one on Forbes' list of highest-paid entertainers. Adjusted for inflation, their gross earnings would shake out to about $235 million in 2020. For perspective, Madonna was number four with $63 million, less than half of the boy band's earnings. That level of fame and fortune often came at a price, and not always for the ones you might expect. On February 17, 1992, New Kids on the Block were backstage at the Olympic Gymnastics Arena in Seoul, South Korea. The headline act was on their Magic of Summer tour, promoting their latest album, Step by Step. 
they took the stage, as they always did, to a wave of screams. Teenagers unleashed their pubescent adoration into the night and rushed the stage. But what nobody knew was that the concert's organizer, Hung Hyun Pyo, had abused the high demand for the pop stars. After the show sold out weeks earlier, he added 3,000 more tickets. The venue was far beyond capacity. So as push led to shove, a stampede broke out. Bodies of audience members hit the floor. Fans just kept inching closer and closer to the objects of their affection. 520-somethings from Dorchester, Massachusetts. Cameras, purses, hands, feet, heads, bone, flesh were trampled in the frenzy. As songs like Baby I Believe in You filled the arena, EMTs were placing 18-year-old Park chong Yun in an ambulance. By the time she reached the hospital, she was comatose. Shortly after, she died. Police arrested the concert's organizer for his role in the tragedy. But before all was said and done, the era of the boy band would claim many more victims. Greed has a way of taking even the most innocent things and bringing sin to the surface. And with a net worth that surpassed some entire industries, the new kids on the block inspired greed. In fact, they're what made self-made Florida millionaire Lou Pearlman wonder if he was in the wrong business. He was the owner of Airship International, an aircraft company that specialized in marketing, like you'd find on a blimp. But in 1992, a few months after the concert in South Korea, Pearlman made a career move he decided to invest in pop music. He launched a company called Transcontinental Records and then held a $3 million talent search to find the next big thing. By April 1993, Perlman had a band. It included singers A.J. McLean, Howie Doro, Kevin Richardson, Brian Littrell, and Nick Carter. Together, they called themselves the Backstreet Boys. The young men called Perlman Big Papa. Big Papa viewed himself as a cultivator of greatness and the boys as his product. The oldest, Kevin, was 22 at the time. The youngest, Nick, was just 13. He provided them with tutors, choreographers, and vocal lessons. He paid for their meals and any other daily expenses. In exchange, the boys trained six to eight hours a day in Perlman's blimp hangar near Orlando, thousands of miles away from any city even remotely considered a mecca of music. In 1995, the Backstreet Boys earned some success in Europe with their first few singles, and Perlman assembled a second band. This was Perlman's way of increasing his odds of striking gold, or breaking into the U.S. market. This latest band included Chris Kirkpatrick, J.C. Chazay, Lance Bass, Joey Fatone, and Justin Timberlake. They became known as InSync. In addition to funding their lives, Perlman threw parties at his estate for the boys and their friends, and the entertainers were happy to take advantage of his hospitality. Highlights of Perlman's mansion included an indoor movie theater, outdoor pool, tanning booths, and fridges stockpiled with Coca-Cola and Yoohoo. He let them take his Rolls Royce out for spins underage. He took them out to lavish dinners, gifted them with $10,000 watches, 
He even bought the bands their own houses so they could live together and bond. For those that grew up in less-than-stable homes, Lou Pearlman was a father figure. Of course they believed him when he said they'd be famous. He knew what he was talking about. He didn't get rich off of mistakes. NSYNC didn't even mind that Pearlman kept them separate from the Backstreet Boys. He must have had his reasons. And he did. Division was Pearlman's way of making sure his Coke never mixed with his Pepsi, of keeping a competitive spirit alive, and it paid off. Soon, the Backstreet Boys were selling one million records in a single week's time. NSYNC was opening for Janet Jackson. 12, 14, sometimes 18 hours a day, seven days a week, the boys grinded. Press tours ran into rehearsals, which ran into radio appearances, which ran into school. For years, Lou Pearlman kept them so distracted that they didn't have time to wonder why he had so many cameras in his house. And they never stopped to ask when they'd get paid. Coming up, InSync and the Backstreet Boys file lawsuits against Transcontinental Records. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. The boy band shaped 90s pop music, and the man behind some of the decade's most successful acts, NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys, was Lou Pearlman, who made his first millions in the aviation industry. In 1998, Pearlman flew NSYNC and their families to California. The man the pop group called Big Papa wanted to celebrate in style at Lowry's in Beverly Hills, a steakhouse where a 12-ounce cut will run you around $50. In the three years since NSYNC formed, the pop group had released two albums, a self-titled debut and a holiday album called Home for Christmas, both of which landed in the Billboard Top 10 simultaneously. Their hit single, I Want You Back, had been playing on repeat in Walkmans everywhere. They'd opened for Janet Jackson, helped revitalize MTV, and sold millions of records worldwide. At the end of their celebration dinner, an envelope was placed in front of the members of NSYNC. It was a lump sum payment for three years of nonstop work. Diane Bass, Lance's mother, knew that the boys were earning an insane amount of money, but she didn't want to get ahead of herself. Even if it was just a cool million, a million dollars split five ways was still $200,000. No matter which way she sliced it, it was sure to be life-changing. The actual figure inside the check made everyone's jaws drop. They were each getting paid 
$10,000 for three years of work. Sure, $10,000 is a reasonable amount of money. But to put things into perspective, if the members of InSync were working standard full-time hours at $5.75 an hour, the minimum wage in California in 1998, before taxes, their checks would have been in the ballpark of around $36,000, more than three times the amount they were staring at. Needless to say, Diane Bass had to metaphorically hold down her wine. Everyone was hurt and confused. When Lance returned to his hotel room, he literally tore his check to pieces. As it turned out, Justin, Lance, and the other members of InSync weren't the only starving artists in the charts. Their fellow transcontinental boy band, the Backstreet Boys, had also recently gotten the wind knocked out of them. The semi-adolescent heartthrobs had been paid a grand total of $300,000 for four years of superstardom. Which, yes, is a bigger number than InSync's. But despite any allegiance you may or may not have today, in 1998, the Backstreet Boys were objectively more successful than NSYNC. While selling out stadiums like Radio City Music Hall and the MGM Grand, Nick Carter earned an annual salary around $15,000. Brian Littrell couldn't make his car payments. The entire band struggled to pay rent. Meanwhile, Transcontinental Records had earned $10 million off the Backstreet Boys. There's no need to break down that math. It was $10 million. So, what in the frosted tips happened? To put it plainly, Big Papa. Big Papa happened. After their shocking dinner at Lowry's, J.C. Chazay called up his lawyer uncle. The singer with the four-octave vocal range thought it would be good to have a legal professional comb through the 1993 contract InSync had signed with Transcontinental Records. He suspected it might be hitting some sour notes. It was. According to the group's countertenor, Chris Kirkpatrick, Shazay's uncle called the contract, quote, one of the worst he'd seen in music history, which is saying something given the general shadiness of the music industry at the time. What exactly made the contract so troubling? Two reasons, recoupable expenses and a line in the contract that we'll call the sixth member clause. Recoupable expenses are essentially zero interest loans. They're costs that are fronted by an outside party that are expected to be paid off in full. In the case of InSync and the Backstreet Boys, Lou Pearlman was the outside party. What they hadn't understood and what Pearlman never made clear was as part of their contract, nearly every cent of money that Pearlman showered on them without ever asking them needed to be repaid in full. Every dinner, voice lesson, plane ride, hotel, everything had driven them deeper into debt. The boy bands had been paying the entire time. They just didn't know it. As for the sixth member clause, Perlman convinced both bands to write his name into the contract as their sixth member. He assured it was a measure meant to protect them. In reality, it gave him more of a share of their earnings and provided him with leverage should there ever be creative differences, which inevitably happened. By October 1999, 
Both bands sued, in sync on a technicality. A line in their contract stated that it was voided if Transcontinental didn't sign them to an American label by a certain date. The date had passed, and they were still signed to a German label. So the boys jumped ship for new management and a new record label, Jive Records, which did not go over well. Perlman's response was, quote, The kids should take a step back and say, How'd I get here? Who took the risk? Who put up all the money? Who's my real big papa? He then retaliated by filing a $150 million lawsuit against the band. Not only did he claim the rights to the name in sync, but per the aforementioned clause, Perlman asserted membership in the group. That membership supposedly gave him some agency over creative decisions like which record labels should represent the band. Ultimately, the judge took one look at the five young men whose poster hung on his daughter's bedroom wall and decided the chubby, balding, 45-year-old Perlman wasn't a member of the pop group sensation InSync. But to highlight the hardcore nature of InSync fans, devotees literally held prayer circles around the Orlando courthouse. Wearing shirts depicting their favorite members, they asked God to ensure that their beloved pop stars make it through the trial to dance and lip sync once more. Today, we know now that their prayers were answered. InSync's next record was a celebration of their newfound freedom. Aptly titled, No Strings Attached, the album's lead single sent a message to Perlman and Transcontinental Records. Bye, bye, bye. The Backstreet Boys, on the other hand, were a little less theatrical. After settling out of court, they saved up money to buy Perlman out. It was good of them to treat him with so much respect, whether they wanted to or not. Because as it turned out, defrauding the best-selling boy band out of millions was just the tip of Perlman's criminal iceberg. His loathsome behavior started more than a decade earlier. Remember how Perlman was in the aviation industry? How he owned a company called Airship International? Well, it wasn't real. Not really. In the 80s, Perlman purchased a used blimp for something to the tune of $10,000. He then lined it with actual gold and insured the whole thing for $3 million. On what was ostensibly its maiden voyage, the blimp crashed, and Perlman proceeded to collect a cool $2.5 million. Can we say for sure that it was insurance fraud? No. Does Perlman's childhood best friend and common sense say so? They sure do. To be fair, Perlman did later purchase blimps that were used for marketing purposes. That said, he also photographed a miniature model airplane to convince investors his aviation company dealt in planes and private jets. It didn't. All of the private flights the bands went on, they were leased. Oh, and he ran a modeling scam that coerced strangers on the street to purchase expensive photographs of themselves. They were told the portraits and headshots would launch a fabulous and lucrative new career. But the granddaddy of all Perlman's scams was a Ponzi scheme. He used fraudulent paperwork, his salesmanship skills, and the influence of his bands to convince ordinary people to invest their life savings in a company that didn't exist. 
Continental Airlines Travel Services, Inc. He stole over $300 million from 2,100-plus Americans, most of whom lost everything when Perlman's world came crashing down. On June 14, 2007, he was arrested and later convicted of multiple counts of bank, wire, and mail fraud, but not before playing an international game of hide-and-seek with the FBI. And that's all before discussing any of the sexual misconduct allegations waged against Lou Perlman. Former manager of the Backstreet Boys, Mike Cronin, allegedly warned O-Town member Ashley Parker Angel about Perlman's, quote, thing for boys. Angel was discovered on Perlman's reality TV venture, Making the Band, years after Perlman had been dragged through the mud by the media. But he was still Lou Perlman. He was still pioneering music. So when Perlman reportedly entered rehearsal rooms shouting at the young men to take off their shirts and show off their abs, Angel dismissed it. It was Perlman protecting his investment. A six-pack sold magazines. At that time, however, Angel hadn't spent any time alone in a room with Perlman. Then, according to Angel, one day he and the record producer happened to be the only ones in Perlman's office. The music pioneer suddenly made an offhanded remark about how he'd minored in physical therapy in college. Before Angel knew it, Perlman was massaging him, saying that it would give his muscles a pump without even needing to go to the gym. A phone call from Angel's manager interrupted any potential escalation. But Perlman didn't need to be in the same room as his boys to learn what they were doing. Every inch of his Orlando home was filled with cameras, including the bathrooms and the tanning booths. The control room was located in his bedroom. Nikki DeLoach says that Perlman filmed her and her Innocence bandmates stripping naked in his tanning booths without their permission. The girl group was Perlman's one and only. He then apparently showed the footage to his boy bands in order to excite them. He offered them other forms of porn as well. As a member of Perlman's band LFO, Rich Cronin was one of the only young men to live with Perlman for any significant period of time in the late 90s. About a decade later, in 2009, Cronin accused the music magnet of molesting him. Immediately prior to the abuse, Perlman allegedly told Cronin that he'd been a psychology minor in college. As if to convince them both that what was about to happen wouldn't damage Cronin forever. To be clear, many people have denounced Cronin's 2009 accusations as lies, claiming he was baiting for attention. Many others have stood by him in solidarity. Unfortunately, Cronin passed away in 2010 from leukemia and can no longer add anything more to the conversation. But no matter the extent to which you choose to believe, Lou Perlman's story remains the same. He was a manipulator, liar, fraud, and thief. And what's perhaps most chilling is that every artist that worked with him after NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys knew whose bed they were climbing into, and so did their parents. Sure, not all of them were underage, and there was no way of knowing just how dirty Perlman's bed was. But history told them it wasn't clean. And yet, they each looked the devil in the eyes and bit his apple. Because the worst record contract in the world is still a record contract. 
If it was career suicide, at least they'd have a shot at a career in the first place. A predator preys on the aspirations of young artists. Unfortunately, it's a story as old as time, and it doesn't only apply to the boys. Coming up, if you want to be one of the Spice Girls lovers, you gotta get with their manager, Simon Fuller. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now back to the story. Lou Pearlman, the media mogul behind pop acts like LFO, Take 5, Innocence, O-Town, Aaron Carter, NSYNC, and the Backstreet Boys, built his career on deception and greed. His lies impacted thousands, most of whom are names you might not recognize. Like retired couple Vince and Laura Mancuso, who lost their lives savings investing in one of Pearlman's many scams. Or Carol Masik, who lost every cent her husband, a World War II veteran, left her in his will. There are thousands of others just like them who will never see justice served. Perlman passed away in 2016 from complications relating to his heart. But while Perlman may have been a shark in the ocean of 90s pop music, he was far from the only thing with teeth. And the 90s was more than an era of the boy band. The decade launched the careers of some of the most incredible female-identifying pop stars to ever grace our planet. Yes, we're talking about Britney Spears. But first, we're actually talking about the Spice Girls. The Spice Girls first formed in England in 1994, one year after the Backstreet Boys. But the girl group shot to global celebrity before their male counterparts. The trajectory of the Spice Girls' success was astronomical. Their 1996 debut album, Spice, is still the best-selling album by a female group in history. As of 2020, the group has sold upwards of 85 million records, which is even more impressive when you consider the Spice Girls only ever released three albums. The girl group was created in the same mold as boy bands like New Kids on the Block. Five members, no instruments, plenty of dancing. Coordinated outfits that expressed each member's unique style and reflected their personality. The members were Melanie Brown, Melanie Chisholm, Emma Bunton, Jerry Halliwell, and Victoria Beckham. And each personality, or trope, depending on your take, was amplified by their stage name. Scary, Sporty, Baby, Ginger, and Posh Spice. If you don't know which stage name matches which given name, don't worry. 
For our purposes, it's not necessary. What matters is that these pseudonyms work to distance the performers from their real identities and their humanity. They became archetypes, products even. Products with a very clear message. Girl power. You've probably heard the Spice Girls' most popular single, Wannabe. It's an anthem that, depending on your perspective, either represents a pure strain of 90s female empowerment or its bastardized commercial cousin. Either way, you won't be a lover of the Spice Girls without getting to know their girlfriends first. For better or worse, the Spice Girls packaged the feminine mantra of girl power and sold it for a pretty penny. After just four years, the part-band, part-branding and merchandise machine earned a gross income of more than half a billion dollars. But the message they were selling wasn't theirs. The Spice Girls co-opted the phrase girl power from a more radical movement called Riot Girl. That's spelled Riot G-R-R-R-L. And it was born out of Washington State's punk scene as a reaction to growing anti-women sentiment. It was motivated by anger. It called itself a revolution. By comparison, the Spice Girls version of a girl power revolution can feel watered down and ready-made for the masses. Toss in the fact that they were built by a management company run by men, and the message can feel like a scam. In 2016, Shirley Manson, the lead singer of the alternative rock band Garbage, told Vice that she thought the Spice Girls were abhorrent. The opinion was founded upon the fact that none of the young women wrote, produced, or played any instruments, nor did they really sing live. In 2000, Washington Riot Girl band Slater Kinney wrote a message to groups like the Spice Girls. Over electric guitar and a heavy drum, the lead vocalist, Corin Tucker, sings, They took our ideas to their marketing stars. Now I'm spending all my days at girlpower.com, trying to buy back a little piece of me. In many respects, Slater Kinney has every right to feel slighted. Groups like the Spice Girls got rich by co-opting the Riot Girl roots of bands like Slater Kinney. That said, packaged as the Spice Girls, girl power reached an audience of millions of women, young and old, worldwide. But as it did, it strayed away from its messaging around the more serious problems women face, like domestic abuse, sexual violence, and rape. What's worth more, true authenticity or reach? Does the global impact of the Spice Girls make up for its watered-down message? Does the confidence an 11-year-old girl feels in her Spice Girls Girl Power Union Jack t-shirt mean any less because its profits line the pockets of men? It's never been cut and dry. Walk into a Brooklyn dive bar touting an unironic love of Taylor Swift, and eyes might roll. Someone might tell you to listen to Dolly Parton if you want real country music. Meanwhile, in another bar in another corner of the world, someone is telling a Dolly fan that Patsy Cline is more authentic than Miss Parton. And as they do, another bargoer might butt in to correct them. They believe true authenticity isn't found on the radio or even on vinyl. It's heard live in the hills of the South. But here's the thing. None of those conversations are about authenticity. Not really. The foil they're providing for authentic isn't inauthentic, 
It's commercial. They're saying that commercial music is bad, meaning pop music is bad. Taken just one step further, pop stars are bad. Musically speaking, measuring a song's worth on how commercially popular it is would be like measuring the weight of an apple by its color. It's beside the point. The conversation that's happening is about substance, and it's a fair one. It's not hard to make the case that the Spice Girls don't have the most substantive music. But the person responsible for creating the brand of the Spice Girls is a man named Simon Fuller. Fuller also created a little television show called American Idol. The winners of Idol sign a contract that hands Fuller ownership of their names, likenesses, voices, and personal histories in relationship to the show forever. The Spice Girls signed a similar contract. According to Mel B, a.k.a. Scary Spice, they literally weren't allowed to sing much of the time. They were dressed, branded, and handed messaging. They were stripped of their ability to even showcase their substance. And they weren't the only ones. In 1998, 16-year-old Britney Spears launched onto the charts with her premiere single, Hit Me Baby One More Time. It was quickly accompanied by a music video featuring the young star biting her lower lip in a tied-up schoolgirl uniform and braided pigtails. As a way to sell pop music, 90s record labels took young women like Britney and hypersexualized them. It's not a mistake that a 23-year-old girl was turned away from auditioning for the Spice Girls for being too old. The younger the girls, the more profitable they were. Yes, sex sells. But the 90s didn't seem to have any moral qualms about selling the sexuality of minors, perceived or otherwise. And as pop stars became products, conversation about their worth became laser-focused on their looks, their bodies, their sex appeal. Meanwhile, stars were forced to answer for anything the public disliked about the money-making industry machine using them as front women. Mothers called Britney Spears a bad influence on young women for her sexuality. What a woman chooses to wear is her choice. How she handles her body is her choice. But she needs agency to make those decisions. And most reports say that Britney has had almost no control over her career or her appearance since she was 16. The struggle for agency and control in pop music wasn't new to the 90s. It was just magnified by the industry's unheard of profits throughout the decade, magnified so greatly that the cycle is still continuing. In 2007, the whole world watched as Britney Spears struggled to regain control of her appearance and her mental health. In 2014, Kesha fought to gain control of her music, life, and her body from the man who claimed to own her. Things might be getting better, but slowly. In 2019, more than 85% of record labels are still owned by men. We're still watching women in music cry out for help. We'll spare you a quote from Britney's 2000 hit song, Lucky. Instead, maybe check out her appearance on Star Search. She was really good. And she still is. So for heaven's sake, leave Britney and those like her alone.
Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll be back to discuss the drama of the British royal family in the 90s, including the controversial death of Diana, the Princess of Wales. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Connor Sampson, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>